What it do, fam? Welcome to another episode of the Miss That Make Us podcast. We actually have a podcast today. It's been it's been a couple of weeks, and I'm not sorry. Okay, actually, I'm sorry because when I did this podcast, I felt how good I felt afterwards, and I was like, I need to record podcasts for my own health. So, uh, I literally leave in two days. I'm gonna be out of the country for a month. So, hopefully, Graham will help me remember that this is healthy for me when I get back. But uh, Today we have on Guy Sangstock, who is um, the creator of circling. If you've ever heard of circling, you know, he's, the word games we play, he wouldn't say he's the creator, but that he midwifed, whatever, you know what I'm talking about. He fucking brought it to the world. And it's one of the most profound communication techniques where it is like a warp drive to a level of intimacy that can only be described as psychedelic by people who have done psychedelics. It's really cool. And he is also one of the people that I can really explore the intricacies of what's called phenomenology. And we get into that a little bit. And I fear that it might be in the weeds for some people, but uh, for the people who it's not in the weeds for, I think it'll be fun and refreshing to hear people talk about it. But we talk about synchronicity. We talk about the intimacy that is available in communication and community. We talk about conspiracies. Did I already say that? Cool. Uh, keep that in, Graham. Fuck it. Let them see that this isn't a perfect thing. So it can help them get over their stories of perfectionism, which is really a way that smart people say, I'm afraid, you know. Uh, you can fuck up because it's not fucking up because it's art, baby. Okay. Um, if you want to follow along with what I'm doing, go to the website, erigazzi.com and hop on the email. I got some courses up there too that helps pay for this. Uh, I'm never going to have ads on here unless it's like, I can't even like, unless it's a, a hilarious ad where it's like, there's this dude on Reddit who makes like ridiculous inventions. And if he ever wanted to like, cause he's actually an artist, but I'll never be advertising like uh, athletic greens on here. So if you want to support what I'm doing, go check out a course or give a course to someone else. Um, at some point I might have some type of like paywall, but it's just to ensure that I can pay my people and then not have to sell you fucking socks. Like, how fucking sick are you of listening to some of these podcasts where maybe someone is sharing a story about how their mom died and then it cuts and it's like, do you have enough plants in your diet? AG1. You know, I never want to do that to you. So go check out the courses. Um, all right. I love you guys. I hope you enjoy this podcast. And God damn Please, God, damn, podcasts that have mid-roll advertisements. Okay, we're out. Guy, it is nice to be back on a podcast with you, and I know that this is going to spiral and circle into many different directions. And I just have an idea that I've been thinking about since yesterday evening that you feel like one of the best people that I know that I can talk to about it. So I'm going to try to lay the land and give the context and then we can riff from there. Okay. Great. 
So I'm listening to a hardcore history podcast episode from Dan Carlin about Julius Caesar um, committing what Dan Carlin labeled a holocaust against the Celts back when he was trying to conquest to get prestige and reputation so he could go do all the things that he would go on to do. Mm-hmm. When he was invading Gaul, he wrote a military treaty that was his commentary on why he committed, you know, the acts of war that he committed. Historians believe that he wrote this for the Roman lay people to read upon his return. And so, you know, the whole time he's writing, he, you could kind of feel that he knew that it would be seen by history. Yep. He accuses a Gallic king of doing three things in this treaty to justify his war. And the three things are, the first is that he burnt the homes of the of this massive army that was moving on the outskirts of Rome so that they couldn't retreat. That was number one. Number two was that this king was trying to use the accolades of war to become an actual king again, even though the governing body of his people had developed to the point where they couldn't have kings anymore. Mm-hmm. And the third thing that he accused, that Caesar accused this man of, was that he also created a conspiratorial triumvirate of, with two other major leaders so that those three could then merge their powers together to control all the tribes of Gaul. Mm-hmm. And he used this as his justification for going to war. This was early in his g- general career before he did most of the things he's famous for. Mm-hmm. For people who know Caesar's history, he would then go on to do each of those three things to Rome. When he crossed the Rubicon, they would burn the boats so they couldn't go back. Uh, he used the prestige of war to become emperor to like force himself into that position. And he also, history showed many you know years after he had died that he actually was in a conspiratorial triumvirate with two other very powerful people. So this is a classic example, at least to me, of a man looking at something that's too complex for him to grok. Mm -hmm. And whether or not he was conscious of it, I'm going to assume he wasn't because he was very smart. And this seems like a pretty big overstep that where he couldn't make sense, he projected his ambition. So So I would say that he projected his golden shadow. Yeah. So now that whole frame is a story for what I call the shadow Caesar effect, which mm-hmm. is when we look out at something that's too complex, don't realize mm-hmm. it's too complex, think we see an order in it, but really we're projecting our deepest fear. Yeah. And the thing that was coming up for me, because I just started reading this book, Not in His Image, which is a book about like how Rome as it became the Catholic Roman church, like how it systematically destroyed pagans, like beliefs and killed the goddess and created this long lineage of a redeemer, salvation, complex religion that all the three major monotheistic religions do. Mm -hmm. The thing that I'm tracking is I think all the really smart people I know who have gotten their like consciousness stuck around the axle of conspiracies, 
I think they're modern day Gnostics where the classical Gnostics, like they believed that anything of matter in matter was Mm -hmm. fundamentally not good is a really basic way to put it. Yeah. Uh, And that this whole thing is being orchestrated by like a broken God. It's not the true God. Yeah. And that the thing that I'm feeling is most of the people that I've met who have had a psychotic break or who have been close to having psychotic breaks, Mm -hmm. they tend to be young, smart people who get into conspiracy theories. Yeah. And they either consciously really resonate with Gnostics or they unconsciously don't realize that they really resonate with that core idea. Yeah. And like, I'm trying to give a name for this effect because it's like the optical blind spot mm-hmm. where we actually have two like coin sized black holes in each of our eyes' field of vision. Yeah. And our brain automatically projects its best guess into that spot. And, yeah. you know, because this is something that we've endured, you know, for millions of years, it's pretty good. But the yeah. effect is still, it's a blind spot. Yeah. And we project yeah. our nature onto it. And I guess I just want to like riff with you on like how if you were close to someone that you really cared about and you could feel that they were projecting like their hell onto the world and that it motivated all their choices, it kept them from really trying in life, like... It's really projected that that they're what? That they're held? They're hell. Like, whatever is their version of hell and they really believe that they are seeing the truth and that anyone who doesn't agree that this is fucked Mm -hmm. is a sheep. Now, the Mm -hmm. thing that I want to really honor is that the people that I know who are into conspiracy theories, most of them are incredibly competent. Yep. And they, a lot of what they track is true. But the metaphysics that they hold it in feels like acidic poison where they could, that there's a way to hold it metaphysically where you can still get all the truth that you found. Yeah. But it's, it's not what the classic Gnostics believe, which is this is all fucked. And until we don't have a body, it's fucked. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. You know, I think the, the first, the first question I have I think is let's just say he was able to he was able to recognize that he's looking at something more complex than he can understand like what 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 becomes available to caesar that isn't available when he projects his golden shadow onto basically what i heard you say is like it's overwhelming so he projects he projects his ideal image into the situation, his winning strategy, right? So that he can then apply his winning strategy to this and, you know, everything that ensues from that. If he, if he looks out and he goes, well, this is what I see, but this is way more complex than I can see. What, what becomes available for him, you think? 
I would say something that he doesn't want, which would be humility. Yeah. Which would actually take away from decisive action. And, I, and, you know, I guess if I was being empathetic to Caesar, when you're at the helm of an army that every day that you're away from Rome, you have to feed them, you have to keep their morale up. And that if, if you flinch, there's mutiny type shit. You know, yeah. like it's kind of hard to imagine the type of intensity totally. of the situation that he's in. Yeah, so oh, I would yeah. say that, you know, he probably didn't want what would be available to him if he admitted the complexity. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, and it's interesting because I think it, on some level, if he was able to, if he was able to admit the complexity, in some sense, he could start to bring his attention to all the things that he didn't know. Mm. Right? And I bet, you know, in some system, complex systems way, he'd probably like be able to like find out if he tweaked this one thing, all these other things that could happen that he could then be prepared for. And this whole, this whole other alternative thing that would happen. But I think it's, it's one of those ways of like where humility seems to be the difference that makes the difference, right? In, in some sense, like, because I was thinking about this with listening, because in, in circling, we talk a lot, like, I, I think circling is basically a practice of profoundly listening. And listening has this quality of, like, you don't realize, you don't, like, listening doesn't become available to anybody until they realize that they don't listen. The moment they realize they don't listen is the moment they begin listening. (laughs) And I mean that on like a macro scale, like on a global scale that you've never listened your whole life, right? But also in every moment of listening, it's got this element of some frame that I was projecting got broken. And that's Mm. that's Mm. when you begin to hear something, right? Because I think that's just the way our cognition works is we we kind of intra-project an anticipation on what you're going to say, right? And then when you, what you say reveals more than my frame, all of a sudden I, I pay more attention, I see more. Mm. But, if, but if I don't have this distinction, I don't make the distinction between you and my listening of you, right? More my interprojection, I'm not going to be able to hear when my frame mm. breaks, right? Mm. In some sense. So those are kind of some of the things I'm thinking about. And, and it's like, uh, when you kind of get to a place where I would imagine that humility in the deeper sense of the word would be a constant wanting to have your frame broken, mm. right? Constantly, because that's like whenever you, whenever, whenever anything, right, is outlives or outdoes your image, your projected image of it. That's a little moment of transcendence. And that moment of transcendence, right, puts you, uh, it puts the observer, I think, at a different level, right? And you, be, the observer gets to get become more compl- a more complex observer in that moment. But that humility is the biggest, the biggest thing, because I do think conspiracy th- theory really does, it's like they bite down on something. And then if they bite down on this one thing, then all these other things, they can link these kind of intercausal relationships all the way to, you know, that we're going to, you know, there's a, they're all out to get us and, you know, thus justifies waging war or whatever that is. (laughs) 
Yeah, because like one of the things that I think about, there's quite a few things that come up from your share. The first is the interesting etymological similarity between humility and humiliation. And it feels like, because a lot of us have a aversion to humility that feels like we attach humiliation to it, which is kind of the ultimate defense that keeps people from listening. But the other thing is there's this tension between like, you could make the argument that psychosis is when there is this overwhelming cascade of the frame continuously being broken in a way where there is absolutely no sense of coherency. You know, Mm -hmm. so there's this tension between I want my frame to be broken, but actually just the most external frames and not my core frames. And that if I'm in a place where my core frames are being broken, I would want it to be in a type of container where there's an elder or something who could help me through that transition because the more intimate the frame that is broken, the more malleable the recreation of the character is. And, you know, like the horrendous end of that spectrum is like what we try to do in torture, what the MK Ultra experiments were trying to force onto people. And the beautiful end of that spectrum is, you know, every great initiatory experience ever. Hmm. And, but I, I think the place that I want to start with Hmm. is I feel this tension between what people would call like strategy and what I'm playing with by calling orchestration, where in the spiritual space, which is the space that I feel I'm a member of, like it's, you know, this is the community that I find myself in. There's almost this cliche about, you know, the spiritual way is without strategy. You know, it's to go with the flow. It's to, but it's like, there are people on this planet who are strategizing for their good and for the good of their family and some of them to a psychopathic intensity, whether or not they are psychopathic because there's interesting system dynamics where you can get a bunch of people who aren't psychopathic, but they think everyone else is. And so then they end up making psychopathic choices and they might as well be psychopathic. Mm -hmm. And that's what we see at the like intense end of capitalism. But... It feels like there's this quote from Martin Luther King, and it's something along the lines of, um, we will not know peace until we who love peace organize as well as those who love war. You know, Mm -hmm. and so it's it's this idea that there is this sense of strategy that must be used out in the world if we want to, you know, help create a more beautiful world. Yeah. I really like the word orchestration because orchestration implies a listening, but you have a intent. Yeah. And you seek to execute the intent, but you yeah. listen as you execute the intent. And then you're yeah. open to like that improv jazz. Oh, and like boy. the example that comes up is if you're going to host a dinner party and you want some people in your friend groups who haven't met to meet, you have an intent. You are strategizing. Yeah. But a bad host is someone who tries to make the deep combo happen when if you're listening in the moment, it doesn't want to be. And a great host will listen for the moment where it could happen, 
and then offers it up and then it all crystallizes and comes together. And so I'm curious what your perspective is on the what feels like the current spiritual disposition of like no strategy, you yeah. know, which in, you know, in a paradoxical sense is a strategy. Mm-hmm. And then this idea of like how much attempting to mold yeah. reality to your intention is too much. Like where do you yeah. fall? What are the things that come up for you? Well, a couple of things. I want to go back a little bit to something that you said. You made this distinction between humiliation and humility. And and I think I heard implicitly in what you said that it, that I think that I've thought a lot about the, a lot about the difference between those two things, right? Mm-hmm. And I've thought about it in terms of the difference between um, humiliation and shame, and um, and vulnerability, right? And it seems to me that you know exposure versus being vulnerable what is that difference actually right mm. and i think the difference has to do with proactivity vulnerability has this this sense of where i am of my own volition exercising right. courage right mm. and opening myself up to something but from my own volition right versus right. it's like uh versus exposure would be something where i'm just hit blindsided and i'm mm-hmm. i'm I'm rendered in a certain sense vulnerable, but exposed to the elements without my choice. It's right. like the difference between imagine, you know, you're in the you're at, in the schoolyard when you're a little kid, and and they come and like pull your pants down, and there you are exposed to the elements, and you just experience intense humil- humiliation, right? And probably need therapy for ten years. Like <laughs> by the time you're 35, after ten divorces, you don't know what the pattern is, you know. Yeah. Um, but if you, if that same kid instead with his friends, like took up a dare and like went in the middle and just pulled his pants down, mm-hmm. right? That's a radically different experience, right? Completely and I agree. think, I think that lines up with what you're talking about, this difference between something like rigid, maybe a rigid st- strategy, right? Versus o- what you're calling orchestration. Right, is in some sense, it's in some sense you could say orchestration would be something like I have an intention. There's a possibility I'm present to, right, and I'm am I even committed to it, right, and I may even make plans about it, right. But really, my commitment isn't to the plans. My my commitment is to the thing, right. It's the it's the possibility of manifesting that. Hmm. And if I I think about it like this, it'd be orchestration would probably be something like if we imagine the like uh, we imagine time came out ahead of you from the future, and it and it when it hit the moment, it became now, and then goes behind you. Mm-hmm. It's like you could say that your intent, right, to manifest this possibility, right, informs your dance with the unfolding, mm-hmm. and I think that. Amen. I think that informs your dance with the unfolding and the plans that you have and all of those kinds of things. But the locus of attention is really on that possibility in the future and your intention to dance with it. And it, and it does seem like that that's more of a, a, a proactively vulnerable mm. position, mm. But vulnerability from the sense of strength and the sense of, I, I want to be open to all that is. I want to be open to the complexity. And I think one of the things that you said is, 
you know, part of what affords me to be able to feel safe enough to open up to complexity, right, is something like if I have a bunch of elders, people I talk to, people that I respect, people that like, people that, that, that when my basic frames, my fundamental, fundamental frames break, if I have a bunch of people that I can like, that can guide me, that are wiser than me in that level, my ability, right? And in certain senses, it's kind of a secure attachment there. If I have secure attachment in the deeper sense of the word, right? I'm going to be able to go out and proactively be more and more vulnerable because even if like my more hyperthalamic brainstem frames, right? Get like completely shattered, right? If I have a place I can go back to, to recover from that, I'm going to be so much more apt to lean into complexity. And I think that what that does is that per, that turns up, because that's how development happens, right? Is like, as, as, as Piaget says, you don't see the level of development you're at, you see with it. Mm, that's and, so good. <laughs> right? And when wow. you, and so, and so when, and then, so, but at some point, right, you're gonna, like, you're gonna outlive you know, this level below you that you're looking at that you can see starts to become too complex and you start to have these dichotomies and that don't fit together and all these paradoxes. And if you can kind of lean into that at a certain level, like, right, you'll pop up. Wow. Yeah, that's you, you great. Go from, you go from, subject goes from objects where, you, where, where, where now you pop out and the level that you were seeing with becomes the level that's seen. And now you're at a new level of, of complexity that you don't see. And that, you know, you start to bring in where there were all these contradictions before you see the synergy and all of that kind of stuff. So leaning into more complexity that you can deal with is the optimum way to develop. Yeah, and I, I love that so much. And uh, an image that comes to mind is there's the classic story of the way that you can capture a monkey is you create a box that has fruit in it and that when they go and they wrap their fist around it the box is created in a way where as long as they hold the fruit they can't mm -hmm. get their hand out and you know the story is that most monkeys don't have a complex enough consciousness to realize that they would have to let go of the first desire in order yeah. to get out of the box yeah i feel that like the people that i'm close to who are incredibly competent who have a view of the world that feels like it feels like their hand is clenched inside of a worldview and, the, yeah. and they're right at the point that if they just right. let go of the belief that God is fundamentally unjust and that this is fucked, you know, like whatever their version of the one is not actually good, you know, yes. like they don't believe in the platonic good. Yeah. It's like, that's the hand that is grasping and they're ready to pop out. And like one of the things that I've been feeling into, and it, it's, it's continuously humbling. And it's like, with all of the tools that I've acquired and all the things that I've learned, if you can't make someone change unless they're willing to receive whatever the like unclenching would be. Yeah. And yet, in, even as I utter that, it's like, yeah, true. But what is also true is like, like, you know, this is not a popular thing to say, but like, I really do believe that there are people in my life where if I tricked them 
into doing a really deep initiatory experience with elders in a container, they're going to really struggle for the first half. And that by the end of it, I truly believe that the chances of them starting a new life path that doesn't involve the daily suffering that I see that they're in, that it would actually happen. But I don't feel, I have some, you can either say it's integrity or you could say it's my own monkey grasping a piece of fruit where I feel like that option's not on the table. And that, you know, because I've looked at the research on reincarnation, I'm like, you know, if they want to play this life out with maximal pain and die early because of the choices that they unconsciously are making each day, then, you know, who am I? Yeah. 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 Totally. Totally. And, and I'm, I'm curious, what is it that if you brought them in to a process, right, with elders and in the, in the way that you're talking about, that they would struggle probably the first half, but by the second half, you kind of get that they're going to they're they're going to walk out with a different way of seeing and responding to the world, right? That will directly render their previous struggle, right, transformed. What is it that happens? What is that difference that ma- what are some of the difference that makes that difference that would happen in that process? Right. I think the, the the current research on what psychedelics is showing, especially at John Hopkins with the mushroom studies, is that there seems to be something intrinsic to the human condition that when we glimpse transcendence at maximum volume, yeah. just the act of being in communication, communion with that thing is actually the highest predictor of how long and how intense the positive benefits of the experience unfold for up to a year later in some of the studies where they've looked at. And they yeah. have found it that they don't do mushrooms again for a year. And yeah. yet, all of the goodness that they got from the experience yeah. either is still there or it has increased and that they yeah. find the correlation is highest with the people who had the, who reported having the most intense type of mystical transcendent yeah. experience. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's the Terrence McKenna quote. It's like, you can spend 20 years trying to sit on a cushion or you can fucking guarantee it tonight with five grams of mushrooms. And now, of course, there's the <laughs> Timothy Leary yes. approach where, you know, he, yeah. you know, God bless him, but he fucked shit up for a long time because of how intense yeah. he was with that proclamation. Yeah. But yeah. there's this feeling of like, if you could just get into a different pattern for an hour that mm-hmm. could bring you into contact with the ultimate yeah. mystery that is at the core of all of this, that all of our belief systems and all of our coping yeah. strategies are trying to keep out the ultimate mystery that destroys every frame. Yeah. That if you just, you know, look into Krishna's mouth for yep. hour, you will come yeah. out of it like kinder, softer, more tender, more humble, more open. Yeah. And it's, it's this really interesting thing where it feels like I have the keys, but my integrity is such where it's like, I will not force that on anyone. And I will probably 
live a life where I watch at least a few people who I'm very close to die 30 years before they biologically should in isolation, in a story that they're unworthy and that they're inherently sinful or whatever the story is. And that my current spiritual disposition is that that's the right thing to do. You know, and I can feel that there's this part of me that's like, I don't know, man, fuck that, you know, but. Right. Yeah, totally. Totally. And I can feel the difference of, I can feel this difference where I I would imagine in some sense for the person, the uninitiated, right, who's clutching on to his frames and his worldviews, right, and thus can only see the option that we know is going to kill himself, right, or create a ton of more suffering than, than he needs to do right? And you who have like had your, your frame, like, like shattered multiple times, right? Is in some sense through doing that, you start to value your frames being shattered in themselves because you have this understanding of where it leads. And that's why there's this kind of, I've noticed there's a rapidity, a rapidness that when you go, when you go from that place of, that place of where you actually experience a certain kind of secure attachment in annihilation, right? That's wow. like, that's the, that's the, like this massive acceleration. But I tell you what, man, it is a mystery to me. Ultimately, because it's like this, it's like, I think about it like this, you know, I can love you with all my heart and I can, I can show it to you. I can write it to you. I can write poetry to you. I can stand on one leg and like wave it to you. Blimps I can send over. I can do. There's so many ways that I can love you. But the one thing I can't do is give you the experience of being loved by me. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Right. There's a fundamental place where we're free. Wow. Wow. And in these cases, I think, unfortunately, <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Wow. In these that cases, is... I think, unfortunately. However, I, I mean, however, I think that, that I have definitely experienced, you know, in, t- in some sense, working with people, right, who are at that place that are kind of gripped and right about being gripped and convinced and all that kind of stuff. And watch them in, have a conversation with them or watch them in a circling experience or something like that where some, where that shift happens, right? Where there's an openness to something beyond what they can, their perspective can see. And it seems to, the thing that I've noticed about that is, is that what can start to, what can start to open that up is when you get inside of their world and actually see the validity of their perspective. Right, 100%. Right? Because it's like when you really get over into another person's point of view, right, and you start to see how things occur for them, mm-hmm. right, you can see that, like, of course, at, at some point you get the sense, of course, this is the only way to go for you, obviously, right? And if you kind of, you can communicate that you see that and that makes total sense and you can validate the logic of that. 
I think that there's something that goes on there that I think is a little bit of a transcendence, right? Because if I can, if I can actually see it from your position and validate it and and note it as a position in that moment, there's that as thing. It's I'm, they can own that there's a position and they may even think it's the right position, but it's a position nonetheless which implicitly brings in the horizon of other perspectives, right? 100%. That's where I've seen, that's where I've seen that dynamic sometimes shift, you know, in dramatic ways. That makes complete sense. I, the few times where it feels like I've um, changed someone's mind in a conversation only came from when I was able to be with them in their world without yep. even having the intention of trying to change them. Yep. And it, it's, it's so interesting how the human psyche will work, but it's like, there's a part of them that knows it's broken. Yeah. And as, as soon as you get in there with them and you affirm yep. it, they actually yep. start to hold the opposite pole and kind of like bring themselves out of it. Totally. I, was, I was at a workshop a while ago and I saw something that, really blew my mind. I saw like there was a person on stage and they were like a master at being able to like break people's frames. And, you know, like, of course it was like with permission, like if you're going to ask a question, that's implied permission, you know, this dude is going to do what he's here to do, which is to break frames. And this person in the audience um, asked a question and their frame was that they were a piece of shit that they were terrible. Yeah. And he started to try to, you know, change that story. And the person in the audience just dug in their heels more and more. And then I saw him do something that I don't have the courage yet as a space holder to do. Mm -hmm. He started to speak from her inner critic's voice to her, like talking about how terrible of a person she was to finally get her to say yes. And in hindsight, what I saw what was happening is that he could see he wasn't getting resonance with her in any way. And then went to the avenue of like, okay, I'm I'm going to affirm that you're a terrible person. And it was only once he got her to start to agree that I saw that they started to resonate. And once they started to resonate, he slowly through keeping the the like resonant connection brought her through him into yeah. this is actually a valid way to look at what you did and it was actually yeah. the most heroic thing you could possibly do and you could feel right. the shift the thing that i saw that like really lasted with me was he trusted her and the container and himself enough to go into like aggression which is yeah. something that like my disposition when I'm a space holder is I don't feel safe being aggressive yeah. to people. Yeah. And the thing like it's it's almost like like they've done studies and you and they tracked everyone's heart rate variability in an auditorium and then they had a woman go on stage and she began to sing. And before she sung everyone's HRV was on their own. By the end of the song, they had all tuned their HRV to her. You know, wow. and like, that's, Whoa. that's magic. 
Wow. And, and there's something about like, if you go to any lineage that is outside of the Western culture and you get into their medicine spaces, everyone I've ever been to, and I, you know, there's probably been like eight unique lineages that I've experienced in some way, they all use song. Like yeah. when you're in that space, they use song to like, and they see it as a technology, as like a way to bring people into coherence. And yeah, yeah. to your point, there's something about simply, what's the way it was framed to me? Um, to have a person feel felt yeah. is the moment of resonance. And then from that place, adaptation, yes. evolution, transcendence is possible. Yes. But it's like, if they're in a depth of hell that you haven't experienced, they'll be able yeah. to feel like you, you can't feel me. Yeah. And this is something that I <clears throat> offer people who are trying to make sense of like incredibly vicious trauma that they've been through. Yeah. And that one of the things that comes through for me is, and what I have found resonates every time that I give this lens <clears throat> is that your unique depth of hell that you've been to, if you return from, those are the type of people that you're going to be able to have them feel felt by you. That's right. the degree to which you can rescue people right. at that layer of hell. And that right. if you're willing to do the work to put the pieces back together and to come yeah. back into the game of life, the thing that you yeah. can look forward to as an act of service is yes. you can feel how how good and tender you were as a five-year-old and how you didn't deserve it and how yeah. you deserve a life where you get to play the game of life. There are yeah. thousands of other people who have been to that part of hell and I can't help them because yeah. they will be able to feel you don't fucking understand, but yeah. you will have that unique capacity to tune to them. Yes, totally. Oh, totally. Yeah. And it's, there, there's other thing too about, I, you know, this is, this is kind of, um, it, this is a mystery to me, right? But it just seems, it, in some sense, all I have, right, is that my experience makes sense, right? Like, wow. Yeah. And if my experience doesn't make sense to me, I can't like, like, it's like all the action stops, right? Mm -hmm. Like my, if my experience and the way I see things doesn't make sense to me, I, I'm nowhere in the world. There's no, there's, there's, there's no, I have no adaptation. I have no, all of that's out the window. So people are really, really, um, afraid of their experience not making sense. And this is a, there's a, there's a, when we teach, when in, in the art of circling, which is a year long training I do to, to, to teach people how to lead circling. Um, there's this part of the explore facet of circling, which is, which is the part where, where you're really deeply getting someone's world. And it's, it's, it's a, we, we call it, it's, we call it validation, validating their experience. Now, valuing their experience isn't, it isn't agreeing with, the, with their experience, right? It's simply being able to, what you're validating actually is the internal logic of their experience, right? Mm -hmm. And it's basically, it's like when I say something to you, like an example, this would be something like, like I say, 
all that makes sense, right? Mm. Especially given that this happened back then and then this happened, right? And now when you're presented with this, how else are you going to see that, right? right? You can even just like, just hypothetically, I didn't even say anything, but you can kind of feel like something in your nervous system kind of like goes, ah. Right. Once that, what, so people are not willing to give up that out of a, I think it's a deep survival thing, right? About if they're, if there's a, there's a way that they're, they're making their, their experience coherent, even if it's insane to other people, like the more, like the, the more that that's threatened, the more they're going to bite down on it in a big way. Yeah. 100%. But here's the thing is experience. I, the thing that I've noticed is like, is experience, someone's experience always makes sense. Yeah. Right. 100%. It's part of the way that experience unfolds. Right. And if it doesn't make sense, it just means we haven't seen all of it. Right. right. But it yep. always makes sense. And that there's something about like what we were talking about when you can really just validate the logic. And it's really important that you, that you come from a place. And this is one of the big practices in circling is, is, is in every circle we talk about the, 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 the intention that we're all holding is to be with what is or mm. put more aspirationally to, to see how profoundly we can be with what is. Mm-hmm. And, and usually when people st- who are n- new to circling, they, they hear that like, sure, I can do that, right? <laughs> like I can, I can be with you without fixing you or changing something. That seems, in fact, that seems really easy. But then they go into and they realize all they've ever done when they've talked to somebody is try to change something or fix something or manage something or something like that. And it's in all of, it's in, it's in all of their habitual responses. And you immediately get, right, just to be with somebody right where they're at without wanting them to be any different, right, and truly sinking in with that. It's a, it's a, it's an Aikida. It's an, it's an, it's really something, it's a shift. When people shift into that, it's not, it's not a skill shift. It's a capacity shift. It's a developmental shift. Right. Um, and so really, really, really being with and getting the logic of someone's experience without trying to change them or have the expectation of changing them or any of that kind of stuff seems to be the key because people can really pick that up. They can pick up your intention right? Even if you're unconscious of it in a big way. One of the things that comes to mind is there's been studies that have looked at that when people argue and disagree about politics, their brain will fire as if a part of their body is being hit. Yes. Yes. And that it's, it's why like, the essence of debates feels like it's just so fundamentally missed the mark, you know, for hundreds of years where it's, it's more of a competition for an audience than to actually try to change someone's mind. And the third thing that comes to mind is this interesting dichotomy between boundaries and horizons. And it feels like, you know, the essence of a boundary is Hmm. to keep out the ultimate mystery. It's finite. It has a box. And then the, a horizon is a line 
that implies that as I move towards it, it expands and reveals more and that yeah. there aren't boundaries. And are you familiar with James Kars? He wrote the book Finite and yeah. Infinite Games. Yeah, brilliant book. One of the best books I've ever read. He wrote a book before that, and I, I forget exactly what it's called, but the essence of the book is he talks about the fundamental difference between a belief system and a religion. And the argument that he makes is that a religion is a relationship with horizons that Mm -hmm. the founders of religions live in. And it produces, Mm -hmm. you know, these type of prophetic ecstatic states where then all this stuff comes out. And as soon as you get to the first generation of people who don't know how to commune with horizons, religion becomes a belief system. And a belief system is boundaries and borders. And it feels like one of the core wounds of our time is that because we are so deficient in elders and so deficient in like living wisdom traditions, we don't have relationships with horizons. And if you even think about it for a moment, most of us have spent the majority of our waking experience inside of man-made structures. Yeah. Poorly, not beautifully made man-made structures where Mm -hmm. everything is borders and everything is built in proportional relationship to our hands. And so the ego gets to fill up the whole room and feel like it's of, like, I am the, you know, architect of the world. And it's how we think about God. Yes. That when you get outside and you see a horizon, there's all these studies that show about like how good it is for our physiology. But I think what the studies can't measure is that a huge part of it is what it does to our psyche when we behold like an ocean or a mountain Mm. or Mm. a huge forest or just a simple horizon where it it reminds us of the like the proportion of our ego to the whole is so humble, you know, that there's something about growing up inside of houses that imply anti-humility because everything is too in proportion to us. And it's why, like, if you walk into Grand Central Station, people are just, they stop moving, they pull out their phones and they're, you know, we like to mock people when, you know, they're in the presence of awe and they're on their phone, but they're still in the presence of awe, you know? And it's like, those, I guess the thing that I'm feeling into is how can we bring horizons gently into the worldview of people who are hiding behind boundaries, you know? Right, right, totally. Yeah, and it's funny because if you think about it, like I, I, I'm appreciating this kind of, just, I've never thought about it in, quite in terms of boundaries and horizons because, but like there is this way where what is the difference? Because the, the boundary, it's really, I guess the question it seems to me would be like, if a boundary de- demarcates a limit upon which you, everything determines, you stay within that limit, right? You don't go beyond that limit and therefore it's fixed and unadaptive and not flexible and all the things that we were just talking about. However, it seems like that the 
the the shift is not them. If we say that the shift isn't them letting go of their boundary, but the shift is um, having it occur for them that their boundary becomes a horizon. Mm, yeah. Right. Because if the moment becomes a horizon, then you get that beyond sense. Exactly. Right. Yeah. You get that beyond sense. I was um one time in a in a video. I was trying to I was trying to see if I like trying to figure out how I can get the 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 notion of horizon to kind of pop. And so I start the video, the video starts off and I put the camera like right, like I was outside um, uh, in, in Berkeley. Uh, and I put the camera like to the ground, like to the dirt. And it was like an inch above, above the ground. And I was like, okay, notice your experience. Like, look at, what are you looking at? And there is no way you could understand, you can't even see, understand what you're looking at. Right. And then I, I go up a little, like I, I, I turn it to the, to my left and it includes more of the territory. And then you can kind of see a rock and a little blade of grass. And then I go back down and I was like, okay, now what are you looking at? And then you can get, Oh, I'm looking at dirt. Right. And then we go up and then you can like, then you could just see the beginnings of the bay, the water. And then I turn down. Right. And then all of a sudden the ground, you could see more of the Mm -hmm. sense of, Oh yeah, it's, well, it's, it's dirt, but it's by, it's by a body of water. Right. And then you go all the way up and then you could just see, you could see the beginnings of the Golden Gate Bridge and then you go back down. Right. There's this, there's this horizon. The horizon gives you the ground. It's this strange, it's this, it's horizons are fascinating to think about. Right. Yes. Because you can't ever reach it. Right. The, the moment you go towards it, right. You can't, it's a, it's a, it's in some sense a limitation, but it speaks to what's beyond that limitation, right? But it's this ambiguous thing also is the very thing that gives you the thing that's the most certain in some sense, the ground. So it's it's this very paradoxical thing. So the question is, is like, how does one, it seems to me is how does one awaken to that the 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 lines that they've been living inside of are actually a horizon, right? What is that sense? And I think, I think, um, you know, in in dialogos, in dialectic and dialogos, which is a practice that uh, me and John Verbeke and many other people have been um, have been, you know, inventing. It's not really inventing. It's kind of, in some sense, it's it's reconstituting the uh, uh, Socratic dialogue, right? Um, in a, in a modern context, in that spirit. Um, and, and basically going into, you know, basically where you take a virtue and, and, and you put that at the center and then somebody makes a, pro- a proposal about what the virtue is. They ask a question like, what is, you know, what is, what is wisdom or, or what is prudence or what is these things? And somebody attempts to, to make a proposal. And then the other person who is the listener is to midwife, right, is to educe, to draw out the fullness of that proposition, right? And then at a certain point, they get to the end, they hit aporia, which is aporia is really impor- important because aporia is kind of like that place where you've kind of just gone to the limit of your cons- of your ability to to apprehend something and you just you can't go any further and then aporia is something that 
in the practice, we take a moment, we stop and we savor it. Because mm. it's usually it's usually that that point is a place where people kind of get frustrated or they don't want to be there or it's a constricting place. But it's also, but if we can tolerate it, it's also the new beginning. It's the very new beginning, right? Okay. And so once a person kind of hits that that sense of aporia, then the who, the person who is listening becomes the person who makes the next proposition. And they and they make a proposition taking up what the previous person says and then speaks to what's still mysterious in it until mm-hmm. they hit aporia. And then we sit and say for that. And we continually go around, right? And aporia, right, is this this kind of place where I think in that practice, it's this strange place where you're on one level, we're celebrating it as an achievement, right? But it's also take something, right? To really value it like that, right? Because it's also the beginning of something, right? And in some way, you know, I've noticed this about the experience the the deeper like the deeper that you you come to and get in more of a profound relationship with being right i've noticed like i've noticed that like you know that you're getting closer to being right or the sense of being is because it has these two these two kind of characteristics there's like a shining force right there's a mm-hmm. Like phanestas to shine forth. That's the root of phenomenology, right? So there's this quality of like something shines forth, it gleams, it shows, right, in its suchness. Yet at the same time, it withdraws into the mystery. So there's this kind of shining forth that is articulating something in its absolute particularity and its absolute essentialness, like it couldn't be any other way, in its utter beauty, yet. At the same time, shy like also discloses this element that goes beyond, beyond what you can say into the mystery. And that's that characteristic of being, right? That seems to be uh, like our relationship to to, to those two things, right? Our relationship to right? Being with the eminence of what's really, really there and its particularity, and at the same time, having a profound relationship to the withdrawing into the mystery yeah. and to comport ourselves in such a relation where we can hold and want both, right? Seems to be, do you kind of, in some sense, if you, if you continually turn towards those experiences over and over and over again and become fitted to them, Right. That's what I think that we're talking about. That's that's where wisdom starts to happen, right, in some way. And the thing that comes to mind is synchronicity. That yeah. profound synchronicities, at least the way it lands in me, is it feels as if there is some profound other mm. that is also a being. And it's like it's like dropping these like jewels of experiences yeah. because I was a staunch atheist for my entire adolescence. And even when I got into college and I started to 
experiment with psychedelics heavily. After like 12 experiences, I was still like, these are all things that are arising out of my biology. Like I was inside of boundaries. And then one day when I was probably about like 21, I was sober. It was during the day I was walking around my neighborhood and I was reading a book and I read a passage where it was a quote and it was something like, the way to walk the earth like a prince is to cast golden apples for other people to eat and for you to finish yours on your deathbed. And I was like, that's cool. As I read that, I look up because I'm about to turn onto a new street. And as I turn onto the new street, this is a suburb in Texas in the summer. There are no apple trees anywhere. In the middle of the road, there was one of those red and golden apples and the part facing me was all gold. Mm. And it instantaneously, without me being able to have choice in the matter, it ruptured the entire frame that I had about life. And I just, I stood there slack-jawed, feeling the simul, like the instantaneous knowing I don't know shit. This mm. thing, yeah, being itself is beyond my comprehension. Yeah. And it's good and beautiful and funny. Yeah, totally. And, and, and all of this happened in one moment. And it's like that moment was more profound in transforming my boundaries to horizons than huh. DMT five grams of yeah. mushrooms, multiple yeah. tabs of LSD. And yeah. Like, yeah, what do you think it was that made that difference? That what, what was the essence of it that had it be that profound? I think if I had to try to articulate it is that I mm -hmm. knew I, it was raw experience and quote unquote chance. There was no exogenous chemicals. There was no me attempting and also the undeniable, like somatic level feeling of this is not coincidence. And to even try to bring forth the frame to call it coincidence yeah. would feel like blasphemy, like whatever yeah. the essence of blasphemy yeah. would be. And so yeah. it wasn't even an option. Yeah. It was just like, I've never seen an apple in the middle of the road in my life before right. or since. And it was directly right. after reading that quote, you know? And it was yeah. just like, synchronicity is a mystery to me because it's yeah. one of those things where it's like, if you really sat and contemplated that moment, like it breaks everything that we're taught a smart person beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't understand it. You know, like it really feels like, yeah. Like one of the things that I, that I've been playing with for the last year and I've just gotten to the level of maturity where it feels like I can honestly play with this lens is what if the fundamental essence of everything is that it is good and that it is just, and it's not only good and it's not only just, but that, because you are a child of nature and nature put in you your wildest dream. Yeah. And that nature is orchestrating itself to give you your wildest, most 
intimate in the privacy of your own heart dream. Yeah. Like the thing that you are afraid to even say out loud that you want for your life, that the universe is actually conspiring with you to bring that forth and that it is for you because it was put in you by nature. Like that is so radically right. unacceptable to the yeah. reality structures that I grew up in that I thought meant that I was wise and intelligent, you know? Yeah. And there's something about the nature of synchronicity that amplifies that. And the last thing that I want to see it, and then I'd love to feel whatever you riff on here is that, but the thing about synchronicity that's so interesting is that I had an experience once where I did this thing called Vilka. Are you familiar with what Vilka is? No. So it's a snuff that um, comes from a combination of tree bark and something else in South America, and it combines DMT, 5-MeO, DMT, which is a more potent version of DMT, and then also a thing called bufotenine, which inhibits the breakdown of DMT, so it makes it last for about an hour. Hardcore, super hard experience where I was just, there wasn't even an Eric to grok the awe for the first 50 minutes. And only once I started to come back and like was starting to relax, was I like, oh, you know. 5-MAO DMT, man. That's its own league. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that I realized is I was sick the day that I took it. And so the moment I came back down and I worked through my fear of I must have malaria, blah, 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 because I was down in the jungle, I realized that I had to go to the bathroom. Every movement I made to go to the bathroom, so like the moment I sat up, the moment I scooched to the end of the bed, the moment that I stood up and I started to walk, each distinct motor action produced a overwhelming feeling of synchronicity and it and it felt um manufactured and the way that i grokked it is it felt like because my cognition had been so completely overwhelmed it was like rebooting and what happens when you have to go to the bathroom is you've (laughs) laid out a map of action And then each movement of that action actually is a reward. It's evidence that the good is currently working. It was like, because I was like a newborn, each moment produced the exact same feeling of synchronicity of like the apple. But I could feel that it was like, it wasn't the same quality of the apple. It felt manufactured as like a primordial rebooting of my cognition. And that people who have psychotic breaks, it seems to be that there's something happening in their neurology where they're perceiving synchronicities Mm -hmm. that don't seem to be of the quality of the apple. And so I'm just super curious what comes up for you with that frame, because it feels like it's this, you know, there's a quote, I forget who it's by, but I think it's by Joseph Campbell, that the mystic swims in the same waters that the psychotic drowns. Right. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And that what makes that difference. Well, you know, it's funny. I haven't thought of I haven't thought about synchronicity in a while as just a as just a phenomena. But it 
I mean, one of the things that strikes me about it is like, kind of like, I think you, when that's happened in my life, there's a, there's a moment of like, what just happened when the synchronicity happens? I couldn't have, ever, I couldn't have even have wanted that. Right. right. There's this element right. of yeah. like, yeah. like I couldn't have written that out or known to want that or like a, that it's like something it's like the emergence of the domain of i didn't know that i didn't know mm. yet it directly like goes straight and is correlated with my life at the deepest level right yeah and there's this kind of frame sense of where something there's something so beyond myself that is oriented to me that mm, mm. I don't understand. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Right. Like this kind of sense of there's a set, there's a, like a frame, there's a frame shift in that a bogglement, right. That, that seems like I think in its healthiest and its healthiest responses probably would produce, would evoke the, the virtue of reverence. Right. Yeah. Where, and irreverence is a really cool, like that's, that's one of my favorite virtues, right? Because mm. reverence has this quality of it, it, it orients you to that mystery, right? That yeah. sense of like, the, the, the apophatic, right? The, the, the unarticulable, but the, the most constituting. And, and, it, and it's to the degree that you're in touch with this radical sense of beyondness and moreness to the degree that in reverence that you're oriented to that is to, to, to the degree that you are, it gives you your own right size. So there's a mm. deep humility in reverence mm. where it simultaneously puts you in contact with the numinous with, but in, in such a way that it does not lead to, it's the opposite of inflation, right? 100%. Those two things. So it seems it seems to me that the, like the synchronicity is one of the things I was thinking about. Like is like the synchronicity seems to open up that 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 kind of sense of like what the hell just I couldn't have even planned that I couldn't have wanted that. That's like there's a there's a dimension open. There's a dimension of that I don't know that I don't know right that just makes itself present, and it seems like. The, the the healthy response to that right is one of reverence, big time. Seems like the unhealthy response would be something like, "I'm special." Interesting, yeah. Because what people you start to get inflated in some sense is that that is a sign that you're that God's picked you or something right. like that, right? And right? You can get into all those those fantasies. Yeah, so the thing that comes up that really makes sense is the response to the numinous is the distinction between the mystic and the psychotic. And the yeah. mystic is this reverence yeah. where the psychotic feels like, oh, this is evidence of and then projection of either my yeah. golden shadow yeah. or my actual shadow. Yeah, it's like a, yeah. Like a nar- it becomes a narcissistic reification, right, to something that I... Well, what's interesting is most of the people that I know who struggle with this is that it's not like it's narcissistic in the weird sense of that it affirms how bad either they are or the world is. And the narcissistic part is to think that you understand the winks of God as evidence 
but it's not yes. to inflate yes. their ego. It's actually to yes. continuously deflate in a way where, because yes. again, the thing that I see is it's like most, I'd say 90% of the people that I've ever had conversations with who believe deeply in some type of conspiratorial lens, after having talked with them for an hour, I, I discover that they have some deep artistic yearning that they've stopped doing. They're tremendously intelligent and they're not doing what they want to do in the world. Yeah. And then the mother that holds all of that is the demiurge and that this is all terrible. Yes. Yes. The, the line that I want to explore with you and I can feel that it's like I'm not quite like I remember now okay from from your perspective mm -hmm. have you ever had an experience where it felt like there was a non-human other that had malintent that was interacting with you and just to give some frame and context to it most of the people, so most of the people that I know who struggle with some aspect of conspiratorial frame, they believe that there are either archons or like dark spirits that feed off of human fear, or that there's demons, or and you know, and you can go into Christianity and most religious things. Mm. My disposition, because of my deep affinity to Jung, is that. Anything that arises in my consciousness, to the degree that I can make sense of it at all, is, is an aspect of my consciousness that mm -hmm. if I interact with it as if it's a wounded or neglected part of me, every experience mm -hmm. I've ever had, that frame has yielded alchemy. I've yeah. never had an experience where that frame did not offer the alchemy so that the resulting conclusion would be, okay, this is actually you know, and yeah. because you're so anchored in the Heideggerian lens, which I actually like, I love talking with you because you live in the space that I try to describe to most people and they look at me with glazed eyes, you know, and it feels like there's the story of the two fish are in the water and they f fly by an older fish and the older fish fish asks them how's the water and they both yeah. look at each other and they're like what's water like yeah yeah especially when i'm talking to people who are doing this you know julius caesar thing where they're looking at the complexity of all and they have like yeah. a comic book version story of like yeah this is what's happening and i know this is what ha is what's happening because i've watched youtube yeah. videos on it but anything that NASA has ever produced is right. a lie right there's, I feel like there's a thing in the room I'm trying to point them to just so we can yeah. talk about it and they can't see it. And it feels like, so just wanted to offer that, but what is your conception and about like entities that are outside yeah. of you and yeah. how have you, like, what's a story of how you've interacted with that? Hmm. I think the closest I've come with that, right, has been more like my my tendency is to get like my 
my downward downward spiral is more about I just get into a night. I just get I get that sense about where the just the whole thing's fucked, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> it's like it doesn't really get into like personal uh, like a personality. I don't have much of of that's not the way my psychology seems to work with that. It's more like where I go is I start to get like, okay, there's just so much pain. And it's like, what, like, is it, is there any meaning to this? And these, I go, I'm more vulnerable to a kind of nihilism, right? Right. That's uh, in kind of catastrophic thinking. Um, But the set, like the, uh, you know, it's interesting because it's like, the sense for me has been, you know, and, and in this, this is, and this is something that as, as of recently, I've, I've recently just started to um, read for the first time a, a, uh, one of the, the, the early, early church fathers, Gregory of Anissa. And I think he, I think he was around, I think he was alive around 300 AD. Right. So he's basically just, he's, he's one of, he's, he, he's an Eastern East. He's more, he's more popular in, in the East. Um, but essentially he's one of the, he's one of the original people thinkers, right. That are in, in, in theologians who are bringing in the Neoplatonic, right. Into the Christian revelation stuff and working all that out. I've just started to read Plotinus. Yeah, totally. I mean, this is, I mean, Neoplatonism is just, it is, it is the backbone of so many things, right? Like I'm just seeing that over and over and over again. It's, we're all on some level Neoplatonic, right? Like whether or not we know it or not. Um, but he's, he, oh God, you'd love it too, man. Like, you know, reading him is like reading this, just this beautiful, like, like philosophically profound, but the analogical metaphors that he's using of like the soul being the bride, being like wedded to God and this whole, this, the way he does it is just, it's just something, there's just something really there. But I think, I believe it was him that started to talk about this Christian notion called the eye of charity, right? The eye of charity. And I think about this in terms of you can think about it as the eye of charity, like your eyeball, or the eye, like like myself, I, I am. I think both of them hold true. And it's you could say the eye of charity, in some way, was a response to this 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 Christian dilemma, right? That that or challenge, which is how could you say that there there's a loving God? right? When all of this strategy happens, right? And, and Gregory Anissa's response and the Christian response to that was this sense of the eye of charity of where, and it's, it's, and when you think about it, it's really quite profound. It's that, it's that you, your perceptual abilities are so deep, right? That you can see in through the most, the the, the most treacherous, disgusting, the repugnant, the most, the, the most banal, the most evil, the most all of that. And that you can, you can perceive through that 
into the good. And the eye of charity is that there's a kind of self-emptying in the face of that such that you can see it right through the most disgusting thing and respond to it in such the most charitable way. And that that was the way that God, they worked all of that out and worked it out. And I think that's kind of, in some sense, there's something, there's something in this, this thing that you're talking about around that is like, is like in the most, there is that sense in the most, in the most funky, crazy, like malevolent thing that there is a, there's a place that you can go that you can see into it deeply enough to where you can, you, you can, in some sense, have experiences self-emptying and find a way to respond to that person in the most charitable way that brings that, brings that good into appearance, right? And exemplifies it. Yeah, and it feels like the, like, the question that I was asking was more about, like, if people have, like, dreams or if they're alone, like, it's paranormal and they create this other in the paranormal space. But that when it comes to a person in front of you, it feels like the capacity for the eye of charity tends to only unfold either if you have a spiritual concept where, where you're actually okay with death, you know, yeah. because if a malevolent person is in front of you, that is an option that's on the table is it's, it's the end of your life. Yeah. But the other part is, and this is, you know, like a trope or a meme that Jordan Peterson has been repeating, but the essence is still absolutely valuable. And it's that until you've recognized your capacity to kill and your capacity yeah. to be a monster, and you've honed yeah. it, that actually yeah. allows you the space yeah. to have the eye of charity when the malevolence is not a paranormal entity, but it's a person in front of you. And yes. it's why, like, it feels, you know, there's that quote, I believe it's from Socrates or Aristotle, I forget, but it's like, it is a profound injustice to your life if you don't learn how to fully be a physical person. You know, yeah. to like find yeah. excellence in some type of sport or some of like yeah. wrestling or running or whatever, because it feels like there's a few things here. One, it allows you the capacity to choose the option of monstrosity if you're in the presence where that's the only act that would protect the people behind you. Yeah. But the other thing that's super interesting to go back to James Carson's book, you know, Finite and Infinite Games, there yeah. is. I think one of the highest virtues of humanity is whatever happens when we watch a person in some type of sporting event transcend Mm. their own skills in that moment. And we can't help but leap to our feet and smash our hands together in like a glory hallelujah type of way. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that's so interesting about finite and infinite games is that there is a way to play a finite game like a sport that injures the infinite game. And that would be like a cheater. You know, like we've all watched someone play a game in a way where it it feels like it's wounding the game itself, even if they win. And then there's a way to lose that 
almost has this like Jesus Christ redemption to the infinite game where it inspires us to like, I'm going to go practice today because of that person who lost. And I think that like, if people, and I was this as a teenager, I loved to make fun of like the popularity of football and basketball and talk about how, you know, it's the opium of the masses. And, you know, I was just a fucking asshole. Mm -hmm. If you can be humble enough to relax into the truth that anything that's massively popular is the zeitgeist talking to you about what's important. There is yeah. something essential in competition that yeah. has been with us since the beginning of culture. Yes. That like there's a way to play the finite game in a way that heals the infinite game. And I think that this is something that goes back to this essence of like, when you look at the suffering of life, there is a way to respond to it that only adds to the impossible pain. Yep. There is also a way to yes. respond to it, even if it eviscerates you, that yes. anyone who witnesses it, yes. and the only witness could be you, but yes. even your witnessing of how you respond to the tragedy yes. of life can actually right. relieve and alchemize a little sliver of the tragedy yeah. of life. And it's a way to play the finite game that feeds the infinite game. Totally. Yeah. And that at every moment, not not two moments from now, but this moment, there's, I like what Peterson talks about, like that, that, that it's always possible that you can take the next step to your best ability to at least not make it worse. Right. Right. That, you know, that dimension, that, that, that there's that horizon open to us that it's just possible, right? So that the next action that we take, we can take an action that at least most won't, won't, won't make it worse. And if anything, can make it even better. 100%. To me, that's a good, that's an argument, right? That that, that horizon is open, that's an argument for the good, right? Because there is something, or there's another thing that John says, is that like something like the good is the promissory note of that being is intelligible. Like when he articulated that for the first time, yeah. that blew my mind because Isn't it was my it was my first time of really like, and I tried to explain it to people, and I feel like I don't quite understand it well enough. But just if I could riff on it for a moment, it's the way I heard him articulate it was that the fact that anything ever has been intelligible to you. And that this moment is intelligible enough that you have faith that the very next moment will also be intelligible is the good. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, yes, Yes. because that's what we all have. Like our fundamental thing is that if anyone is acting, Mm -hmm. anyone alive on this planet right now, it implies their belief in the good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, everything that you can say about it presupposes it. That's why it's kind of like... <laughs> That's great. Right? Like, yes. You can't teach the good because wow. you have to presuppose it in anything that you say about it, right? Wow. Like they listen would have to understand it on some level in order to even cognize what you would say about it, right? Yes. It's, that's why, like Plato said, that the good is beyond being, right? 
and that right. and that like Platonus Platonus would says that he he really equates he says that being is intelligibility right it's it is intelligibility if it is if it is at all it is in, it is by virtue of it being intelligible right so there's that kind of sense mm-hmm. of where I think everything that you know I know that you're oriented to and also with with like everything encircling and dialogos that I'm oriented to presupposes this way that like the that that it's a it's a it's more of a you could say is a classical epistemology right the classical epistemology versus the modern epistemology is something like you know the, the classic the classic epistemology is that the it's just take it for granted that the world is intelligible right and therefore to become more intelligent right is to become more fitted to the world to become more like the world in some sense so you have this contact epistemology right and this is it's with that 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 presupposes any understanding if you're if if you're doing things that that are transformational. It presupposes this intelligibility before something that you come into fittedness in a in a contactful way, such that you start to become more like the thing that's intelligible, right? Mm-hmm. Versus kind of like the modern sense, which is with Descartes. You know, truth. Um, you know, truth was given by the, all you needed to do is have the correct proposition. You didn't have to undergo anything. <laughs> you didn't have to change it all. You get the correct proposition and then and that's the knowledge of the world. Right. But this contact epistemology, this this deep sense, right, of the good, right, of that being itself is intelligible and therefore it's always possible, right, to come into relation with it, right? To, even when you don't understand it. In fact, it's bank it's it's like because it is so intelligible, right it, it's it's guaranteed you're not going to understand all of it right it's Ever. it's a mystery that will continually recede yes i love that well it feels like that's the place that this wants to close we could yeah. talk for hours um first thank you for everything that you do in the world like um, when we brought circling to fit for service, it is now the thing that people want the most. And, uh, we like, I want more people to know about it. So please take a moment to let people know who are interested. Like, what are the things that you offer? Where can they learn? Yeah. What are the resources? Because it's transformative. Yeah, totally. Well, a couple, couple of things I'd say that, so circling just, it, you could say it's hard to define. It's one of those things that it's, it's um to try to describe it really isn't doesn't do it justice until the moment you experience and you know exactly what it is right but that being the case i'd say circling you could think of circling is is something like a um a deep it's a like a deep meditative or yoga of relation right if we just took the fundamental unit of i thou and we and we made it a yoga a practice, right? You know, in asanas of listening, of ways of being, of paying attention, of attunement, 
right? Of, of, of sharing yourself, of communication. There's all these practices, right? And if you think about it like this, it's like, if you take, I mean, I'm sure all the people who are listening, right, have had experiences where they've had relationships and conversations that have been life-changing, right? Mm -hmm. Like you think about all the, 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 intimate relationships that you've had either either in a moment or a whole relationship that that you were one way and then you had that relationship and that altered who you were in a in a positive way in a deeper way or you have a like a deep philosophical conversation that just radically like blows your mind such that you you're 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 perceiving differently afterwards and if you just took took all those profound conversations and relationships and you found the through line through all of them, right? And you basically took that through through line, abstracted it out, and made it a practice. That's what circling is. And so if you think about, oh, why, well, why bother doing that? Well, if you think about the, that, I think, you know, I, and this is the thing I'm just appreciating because I, I have a 19-month-old uh, at home, it's my second child. My my first child. My first child. He's nineteen years old, and uh, uh, Teague's Teague is nineteen months old. And I'm relearning in such a deeper way, and totally seeing this so much more than I did the first time. I saw it the first time, but I'm really seeing it this time, where he is literally. He spends like as, as thinking about this the other day. He spends somewhere between three and eight hours a day, right? What he is, is he like is sitting on someone's lap, facing them, doing some version of rhythmic interactions, speaking, laughing, peekaboo, like, and he's just, he's, he's like, is a little human being. He's oriented in co coming into contact with the, the world and becoming who he is through this deep inner subjectivity. Mm -hmm. Like we become in and through relationship. It's just the nature of what it is to be a human being. And it's easy to see how that, how deep that is early in life. But I think that mm -hmm. that actually is the case ongoing in our lives, or at least it could be and probably should mm -hmm. be. Um, and so to think about, I don't know of many practices that, that take relationship as something to become masterful at, right? Um, encircling happens to be just one of those practices of how to, rather than just kind of finding yourself in interactions that are profound and deep and life-changing that you can actually like, you, can, you actually know how to have them. You can bring some intention to them. Um, and if that's interesting to you, there's, you can, there's circling and there's a bunch of different ways that you can get involved. One is every Thursday night at the Circling Institute, which is my company. We have an, a three hour open event that's open to everybody. It's like $20. Wow. Um, and it happens every Thursday night, except for major holidays. And that's been going on for years. Wow. We also have a, um, we have weekend um, circling intensives, which I would say, if you really want to get the sense of the depth of circling, do a weekend. Um, and we have those every, we have one coming up April, tw I think 23rd, 24th, Saturday and Sunday. And they're like eight hours long. Um, 
And then uh, uh, we also, the main thing that I do now is design and teach the, the year-long intensive training, which is called the Art of Circling. Um, and, and that's where uh, people really want to, uh, like, it really speaks to them and they dive deep and they want to learn how to facilitate or they want to have the skills that it takes to facilitate, to bring into to their life or their company and those kinds of things. And that's called the Art of Circling. And that's a year-long program. And that that just opened for registration. So we're taking we're taking people right now. And I th- I can't remember when that starts again. I think it's like in, it starts the next cohort starts in uh, I want to say four or five months from now. Um, and there's much much more. But you can look you can look me up at the circlinginstitute.com. The other thing that's also going on is I've become uh, one of my colleagues, um, John Verbeke. And I have started to, to teach together, uh, and we do a, a course called Circling Dialogos, right? Which is basically oh, um, two five-hour days, happens on a weekend, and, and it's called Circling into Dialogos. And it's basically going through a whole ecology of practice that, that culminates into that practice I talked about called Dialectic and Dialogos. So it's basically like where we take the the horizontal intimacy, right, that happens between us, and we cultivate that along with meditation and philosophical contemplation, and we turn it up into the to the vertical, right, with with um, Socratic Socratic basically Socratic midwifery, and it's super cool. <laughs> and we have we have one of those coming up, and I think in about a two months, two and a half months. Also, um, if you like conversations like the, the one that you just, that you just listened to with here with Eric, um, I have a YouTube channel. Just look up Guy Sangstock. Um, my, the, my channel name is circling and circling Dialogos by with Guy Sangstock and you'll find tons of trippy, cool conversations <laughs> like this. Thank you so much for what you do. Thank you for coming on. I always deeply enjoy these conversations, brother. Yeah, me too, my friend. Hope.